This is the second of a two-part special on NASA and the teams at Mission Control and the International Space Station. In the last episode... Being the first woman, it is important, right? Because role models are really important and I've come to understand that. But coming up through the system, I, I never really thought about it. It's just work hard, do your best. Launch directors, go for launch. It is my pleasure to welcome to today's program, Holly Ridings, Chief Flight Director at NASA. NASA's lead flight director for the SpaceX demonstration mission. Those folks, in order to do their work, have to put themselves in danger. You have to be at a certain elite level that no one cares about that anymore. It doesn't matter if you're getting shot at. You're going to do your job, whatever your job is. We choose to go to the moon. So what is it that the beast so damn tough? When you're in a control center, you can't stay for very long and do what you do if you're not willing to just keep working the problem. So damn tough. It kind of circles back to the point you made about the vulnerability exercises, if you will, like trying to engender that in a group. I was going to say, how do you do that? But I've got a bit of an idea here, left field, but see if you'll go with me. Because you mentioned there the ability to handle mistakes and move on, like accept that, yeah, I screwed up, but what am I going to do now? And one of the exercises that I've done with a bunch of different teams, different sports, to kind of make that vulnerability a bit of a norm, Preston, I hope this works for you, given you're the expert teacher in the room here, is that we share the biggest mistake that we made or something, a choice that you made that you regret, particularly in your area of competence, where, like you say, people who are competent don't want to admit that they're not competent occasionally. So my example, when I start that up, is I had a couple of issues coming to me from different players. It was clear there was a dynamic thing going on between some of the most influential players and a coach, and I tried to play the middleman and, like, manage it all. Anyway, long story short, ended up getting to the point where the players got the coach fired. And this isn't an entirely unusual thing in pro sport. It wasn't ideal, obviously, because it actually ended up in the whole staff got cleaned out and I moved on as well. But, but I look back at that as like a big mistake that I made and have learned from. But I imagine sharing mistakes in both of your areas are probably a little more catastrophic you know, by definition. Would you be willing to share one of your big mistakes each? I mean, today or this week or... Like, like, when am I not making a mistake? Um, <laughs> sure. I think one of the things that we have is you can't fix what you can't talk about. And I will tell you that one of the challenges with vulnerability sometimes isn't that people aren't willing to be vulnerable, is that they're never been asked. And I'll give you an example. So I'm an instructor for the National Advanced Fire Research Institute, which is the, is the governing body for all of the type one incident managed teams that fight wildland fire all over the country and the world. So in order to get to become a type one team, you have to get certified through this course. All instructors, there's a lot of instructors. I'm just one of a zillion and I'm a guest. I am not one of their cadre. And one day I have about a hundred folks in the room, gray hairs and blue hairs, people that have been doing this work for a long time, probably a hundred people in the room. And I'm getting ready to talk. And I had known that there had been some incidents where there'd been some recent fatalities and fire. So I just asked people, a little to your point, Patty, I asked people, hey, everybody who's actually been first on for a fatality, please raise your hands. And everyone raised their hands. And I almost started crying on stage mm. because it was such an utter shock to me. 
And it was such an utter shock that they weren't talking to one another. And when they all looked around, they didn't realize that everyone else had been through a fatality because in their world, they didn't talk about it. And it was so, I had to take a minute and gather my, myself, my voice and everything else and restart. And I, I said, okay, well, just, we're going to have to talk about this. Like whatever I was going to talk about, we're going to talk about this. And it is, I guess what I would say, and I'm happy to tell you about a billion of my errors, but what I'm more focused in on is not the need to be vulnerable, but the need to be asked. And I think what I'm taking from your story, it's not a dodge. Like I said, I'm happy to tell you whatever you want, but it's more, the, the point I want to emphasize is not that people are sharing. It's that somebody asked. I think it's a great example. It's not necessarily that I did this and it led to X and he's who got hurt by it. Yeah. But I got goosebumps as you described that because yeah. it's an unexpected response for you and obviously a very powerful one. Yeah. But the reason I, I thought instead of saying, tell us what you to make this happen, like I thought living it was better to your point. It's about actually just having those conversations. If yeah. people are listening and they're like, how do I get my team to be more vulnerable? Well, yeah. You ask questions and yeah, they could be uncomfortable, but that's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the famous things I've learned, I'm not been the first one is people will ask me, well, how did you get them to tell you that? And I was like, I asked them <laughs> like people will <laughs> tell you the truth. If you ask them, right. Yeah. Most times they just never been asked. Mm -hmm. Holly, over to you. Sorry to, to grab in the space before you got on. But I mean, it, get, it gave me time to try to, you know, cycle through the, the different stories. Like Preston said, you know, this week or, um, <laughs> It's interesting, right? So I've been the chief flight director for three-ish years, going on four. And uh, before that, you know, I was I was a flight director for many years. And it's interesting, right? Because you go through this process and maybe getting selected to the teams or, you know, any kind of team, you know, Olympics, you get selected as a flight director and, and you kind of think you're pretty cool. I mean, everyone, you kind of think you're pretty cool. You made it. You get like <laughs> right? different stripes and a badge and like a better car park. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, you made it. And then, and we, we talk about this with our, you know, new flight directors. Then you start your training and you're kind of eh, maybe a little humbled. Maybe I don't know everything, but then you get console admission control and you're like, I've got this. And that goes on for about a year. And then you sort of realize like all the stuff you have no idea, you know, just the algorithms in your head and the way you approach problems, it sort of goes from like a 2D thing to a 3D thing. So I had been a flight director, you know, several years and I was responsible for a shuttle mission and we did five spacewalks on the shuttle mission. We took up a piece of um, the space station that the, the Japanese team JAXA had built and we were on the second spacewalk and the, one of the spacesuits decided it didn't really want to work very well. Um, and I would have told you going into that mission, you know, I knew everything that I had studied, I had trained, I had followed my crew, I had been in the pool, you know, practicing the EVAs. I mean, you name it, I had done it. I was absolutely freaking prepared. And the SID base suit starts, you know, not working real well. And you realize in that moment, all of the questions that you should have asked, like the work you should have done. And luckily, cut the EVAs, the spacewalk, the EVA short, got the guys back inside, everybody was fine, you know, but it stands out to me as this, you know, uncomfortable moment where you realize, you know, you as the leader sort of just, one, that you got to rely on your team because you're never going to know everything. Two, 
how really, you know, vulnerable you are in terms of getting in your head that you've sort of figured this out because the truth is you have it. You have to constantly be learning work and then do more work and then do more work and then keep doing work. Right. And so I picked that one out of the, out of the list just because it, it taught me a lot in a really uncomfortable situation, both, you know, about teamwork and toughness in a way, right? Because I had to, in that moment, rely on them. I had to, you know, be frustrated at myself, but figure out how to get the guys back inside safely. So it, you know, it's one of those moments that gave me a lot of good lessons learned and, and uh, figured I'd share it. Appreciate you both sharing and, and playing along there with an unexpected, that wasn't in the show notes. Yeah. There's a little bit of a twist in the tail. The, the um, one thing I'll jump in and say, Patty, is that in my world, one of the things that you realize and that I'm grateful for every day is that in my world of medicine, of technical law enforcement, special fire, everybody has a first day. There's no practice. Like your first heart surgery, you get to watch. But the first time you hold a scalpel, you're digging into somebody's loved one. First time you go into a burning building, yeah, there's there are buildings that are go on fire that you train on. But as you know, it's not the same thing, right? You're going to get the kid that's trapped in the room or you're not. And that's day one. Like, And there's no do-overs. And so what's interesting to Holly's point is that those of us who have been on the other side of the mistake, we've climbed Ego Mountain and then fell off the other side. We are very, very, very conscious of those first day folks. Like, there's no arrogance. We're like, get over here, sunshine. Like, how can I help you jump this distance or jump for that trapeze, as we say? It's coming at you and you're going to have to leap into space. So what do we need to do to make sure you can catch it? Well, and if you're lucky enough, you get to keep having first days, right? So, you know, we launched Bob and Doug, um, Bob Beak and Doug Hurley, the very first Dragon, crew crew rated Dragon last summer. It was May during COVID, right? It had, COVID had started in March and we launched in May. They were on the space station for a couple of months, came home in August, right? And so to sit in mission control and have two of my very good friends, you know, launch on the first new spacecraft that we'd put up in almost 40 years, because the shuttle was was way back, early 80s. You can experience that first day all over again, but hopefully you take last time you ran that algorithm and, and are more prepared. But man, that that was a real gut check to watch uh, to watch those guys and just, you know, hope we'd done everything right for them. No doubt. I, I can only imagine what it would be like to send your best friends up there. Preston, you, you mentioned something there, and also, Holly, you, by referring to that story of your close friends going, you're putting them in danger. The concept of, I know this, this comes from, I borrow it from John Gordon. I'm sure he borrowed it from someone else because that's what happens with good ideas. It, he talks about, I think he used it most famously with Darbo Swinney at Clemson in the locker room to develop vulnerability, having people share their hero, a hardship, or a highlight. Now, we've talked a little bit already about hardship, and I'm going to leave it up to each of you about the hero or the highlight, but it really just popped into my head there because, Preston, you mentioned you, I heard you tell that story and you were the hero. For Not that you did it for that reason, but yeah. for the person who's on first day duty, when the guy who's the greybeard, which you have a magnificent greybeard, by the way, I'm never Thank giving you. you this compliment, but, but by you. God, you've got one of the best beards going around. I don't, uh, yeah, I'm doing nothing to help with that. <laughs> <laughs> It is comfort and liberating and I don't even know the other adjectives. I'm almost running out of superlatives. To have someone of your level say to them, how can I help you? Like, 
you're reaching out a, a, a twig when they might be drowning, right? right? Who was that for you? How did you recognize the power of that? So for me, I'm not, I'm not a hero guy only because, you know, working with human beings all my life, I think everybody has their strengths and their, and their weaknesses, right? But what I will say is that I'm a sucker for somebody with power that is still gracious, who's still kind. Like for me, that if you can have all the power in the world and still hold people's door open, I'm like, I'll do whatever you want. But for me, my first boss, really, when I was a wilderness guy working with kids in prison, out of prison, I came into him. His name was Phil Costello. He passed away a while back. And Phil was a former Marine, decided to serve the country by working with kids nobody else wanted in places nobody else wanted to be. And we would have followed him anyway, simply because he wasn't asking us to follow him. That's just the work he was going to do. So one day I come to him and I said, these kids need a lot of stuff. He's like, yeah. And I was like, I don't have any of that stuff. They need like psychologists and social workers. And I, I don't have any of that. He's like, you are absolutely right. But that's not your choice. I'm like, what? He's like, your choice is that those kids either have prison or you. So the question isn't whether you're better than that psychologist. The question is, are you better than prison? And he just stared at me. He's like, are you better than prison? And I was like, I- I'm better than prison. He's like, great. See you out there. And it was just this great moment, like, let me just explain the actual options, not the ones you've made up in your big brain, but like, no Mm. kidding. This is what, this is the best we can do. Can you do better than that? And I was like, yeah. And I've never forgotten that. Very cool. Holly, how about you? Yeah. Listening to Preston's whole story is I should go first because he's so good. Sorry sorry about that. I'm really (laughs) setting up the fail there, right? Let me me frame it by saying that that you mentioned the, the value, particularly being the first female flight director, you mentioned the value of having role models and representations. Who allowed you to think that this was possible? Yeah, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have a bunch, but I'll pick out two. You know, people ask me about mentors, so I usually couch it that way. So one of them was in college, a guy named Aaron Cohen, who before coming to be a professor at Texas A&M had been actually the, the center director at the Johnson Space Center. So he was a career NASA guy, retired, you know, went to faculty at, at Texas A&M and College Station. And he really, I mean, he knew everyone, right? I mean, he had this amazing network. He'd been in the business a long time. And so, you know, we do this senior design project, which is of course about space, which was great for me. And really you go into his office and he would just say, well, tell me what you're thinking. And, you know, here you are at like 20, 21 years old, trying to talk about space stuff to like the guy who knows all about space and he was, to borrow a word from Preston, incre- just in, or from you, incredibly gracious. And he would, you'd ask a question, well, how do we calculate, you know, the laser energy of shooting a laser, you know, from the earth to the moon? And he'd get his Rolodex, you know, an actual literal Rolodex, no phones yet, right? And he'd flip it on, this, on the desk. And then he'd like start dialing some number and he'd be like, here, Holly, talk to, you know, this guy who is at the Lunar Planetary Institute. So the second one, someone talk to the laser guy. Yeah. yeah, talk to the laser guy. Let me find the late. And I, I really mean that. I'm I'm not making that up. So the second one was was actually very similar. I went after college to work at the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, outside of Washington D.C. And I worked for a guy named like Jerry Soften, and he was a, a scientist, so an astrobiologist, and uh, helped land the Viking landers on Mars. And that was also a career NASA guy, right? And very, very similar. He knew everyone. And you would go in his office and you'd be working on something. 
and he would say, hmm, okay, let's figure out how to answer that question. And one day, very distinctly remember, he, there were three of us, you know, students, come with me. And we go and we get in his car and he proceeds to drive into Washington, D.C., which is about a 30-minute drive, like a crazy person. You know, you're just sort of fearing for your life and pulls up at like the gate to the National Academy of Sciences. And we're like, where are we? You know, we're like these 21-year-old kids. And he says something, the guy lets him in, you know, and then he just parks in the very front row and says, okay, we're walking in, we're going to meet this guy. And you're thinking, what just happened? And before you know it, you're standing in front of, you know, again, now it's the, you know, the Mars astrobiology people talking about life on Mars. And okay, Holly, ask him your question. And you're just like, what just happened? And, you know, after you get this deer in the headlights look, I mean, I look back and think, how did I learn? You asked that, how did I learn to do that? And, and I was lucky enough to have two different people represent, you know, almost that, that exact humility and graciousness and skill and to, to share their network and their resources with me as a poor college student. I mean, who knew I was going to turn into anything, you know, maybe they did, but at the time I was like, thanks for investing in me. You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... You yourself, in order to do some good for your team, have to be continuously disrupting your own thought process in order to grow because you got to stay ahead of them. So damn proud. Preston, I don't want to embarrass you here, but as I hear Holly describe that, I'm thinking in my mind, like, you know, when you hear someone tell a story and you might map it onto one of your own experiences, I'm literally reminded of the first time I, I got to go into Mission Control of Houston as well. And I got to sit in on an open heart surgery and like observe these ridiculous, like just unimaginable experiences for someone who just grew up playing sport, right? And then I'm like, oh, they were set up because I knew Preston. Like I went to mission critical teams and I met some people and it all just kind of happened. So Preston, you're my answer to this question. There you go. He's my answer too, by the way. Like those are, (laughs) those stories are when I was younger. If you want recent stories, they all start and end with Preston. I'm super confused though, why you've been to mission control and I did not know this. Fun fact. I think I was at the mission critical thing you went to at FDNY. Might have been 2017, 2018 maybe. That might've been my first one. And, uh, I met, his name escapes me right now. Drew? I think he was in your seat at that time. Whoever preceded you in your right. current role. Norm Knights. Norm, yeah. So I, I met Norm either there or, or Preston might have connected me by email. And then we happened to be playing the Houston Astros uh, when I was with the Toronto Blue Jays. And whilst I was there, I took Norm and some of his team to the game and got them tickets and walked them out on the field and, you know, we did a swap. So I'm sure he found that amazing, but I think I got the better end of the deal, if I'm being quite honest. So that's how it happened. And I'm sure maybe maybe we even met, Holly. Who knows? I'm not the most memorable guy, though, particularly when you're busy trying to save lives in an astronaut. I do know that I got to see everything that Preston described, and it's, it's uh, excuse the pun again, but it's out of this world. Yeah. I'm super excited, and you're welcome back anytime. Well, I will, I will probably take you up on that. Thanks for that. I know you guys are both very, very busy and very 
in demand people. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, even though I could talk to you all for as long as you had time for. But to start to wrap up the show, there's a couple of questions that are that that hang there. One being, out of everything we've talked about, what would you say is potentially the most actionable for people who are listeners that aren't in charge of NASA flight crews or aren't special experts who get called in to help people who deal with critical and life-threatening situations in terms of either enhancing their toughness or just dealing with pressure situations? And then the second one is, given your work and what you do, what do you actually hope for? Like, Holly, I'm really curious, do you want to go to space? Or do you just like looking at people who go there? <laughs> I mean, I would certainly love to go to space, right? I mean, who wouldn't who would love to go to space? I mean, some people would. You would press it. <laughs> For those who, who are listening and can't see, Preston just put his hand up very I'm quickly. out. He, he is out. Okay, I, like, well, I learned a fun fact about Preston on, on this every podcast. Every team I work with wants me to jump out of a plane and parachute, and I've successfully evaded every single one of them. I like, So far. So far, so far, you need a growth so mindset. Can I tell you one? I, I'm going to tell you one quite one really funny story. So I was working with one of the teams at Stennis in where there's a NASA place in Stennis, uh, Missouri, I think. And I happened to be stuck at the entry, just trying to get me through to get my passes and all that. So I call up my wife Amy. My wife Amy and I have been married 21 years, and she knows the shenanigans that Holly and I get up to, and other people get up to, and we're always in these odd places and so I, she's like where are you right now and i was like i'm at stennis she's like i thought you were the navy seals and i'm like i am but we have to get on a nasa first and there's a pause and she says under no circumstances are you to get into a rocket ship i don't care why i don't care if it's an accident i don't care they're asking you to clean a thing or to step over here no because you'll press the wrong button and then we'll be trying to get you down don't press that button so that's <laughs> That just gives you an insight of the people that know me about like what I'm actually like. Like, do not know. Don't let press anywhere near that. Fun story. Fun story. But now, now, so yes, one guest on the show is like, yeah, of course I'd love to go to space. One is like, hell no. Yeah. Moving well, on from the space topic. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay, like, again, another funny story. This, this is a side note, but while I was in mission control, so in Australia, space exploration is not a big thing. Like it's just not, we, we don't have our own agency. We definitely have watched America and Russia battle it out and, and do amazing things, but it's never really, besides the Challenger disaster, it probably didn't break through news very often. And so I went into mission control and I was learning about the ISS there like, and, and how huge the project was and how many years it took and how much collaboration it took between countries that were basically at war otherwise and it was just mind-blowing to me and then I went into the actual mission control center and I saw the cameras and I saw people talking to the astronauts who were there and then I was lucky enough to be gifted the opportunity to like press a button on a mouse and move a camera like and I'm looking at it and I'm watching the horizon of the earth, like the, the types of things you see. I'm a big Star Wars fan. And I'm watching this happen and I'm just like absolute or mind-expanding moment. And so before that, if you had asked me the question before I'd been there, I would have been like, oh, yeah, that might be all right. Having seen it, I'm like, oh, my God. I can only hope that by the time I'm in the dirt before then, that it becomes possible for that to happen. Anyway, absolute side note, but yes, 
that was a very enthusiastic yes. So there's two to one, but Preston had enough fear to count for two when, when it was mentioned. But in general now, just referring to your career paths and, and obviously you've both done some amazing stuff, continue to do that. What do you hope for the future that your work opens up for people? Yeah, so maybe I'll start, right? I mean, there is a tremendous amount going on in human spaceflight, right? I mean, it's just growing you know, almost exponentially in lots of different directions. And, you know, when I first started, right, we had the building the space station and we had the, the space shuttle. And now, you know, we have the commercial partners, you know, we have multiple international partners, all different sizes of commercial partners, right? I mean, all geographically diverse. I mean, it, it is just amazing. You know, the barrier to entry from a technological standpoint to try to do something in space, you know, build a rocket, get off the ground, whether it's got humans or not, you know, is coming down in a, in a good way. And that's good for everyone. And so the commercial industry and NASA's partnership in it is just take it off. So the last several years have been all about development, which, you know, we could do a whole podcast on the different skill set you need to do partnerships and relationships when you're trying to do development of vehicles instead of just, you know, operating them and flying them, right? And that industry is growing. So I'm one of those people that although, and maybe it's the humility that Preston was talking about, I don't, I don't necessarily have the, I must do this thing or my life will not be complete, right? I want to do something that's relevant you know, I want to always be learning. I want to have fun. And so I think about my whole next year or two in terms of missions, right? So we've got the Boeing Starliner uncrewed flight test that will is planned for the summer. You know, we're coming up on the uncrewed test for Artemis. So that's the Orion vehicle and that'll, uh, no people yet, but that'll head out to the moon. And then, you know, the following year we'll have, have the crewed mission you know, head out to the moon, not land yet, but, you know, then after, after that, we'll get down to the surface again. And so for me, I want to see the industry grow. I want it to be accessible. I hope people like you, Patty, can find a way to fly, you know, myself as well. And combined with that, I want us to keep flying these amazing missions safely. And that allows us to move forward, right, as a human spaceflight community. So those are kind of my life goals, right? Work hard, stay relevant, learn something, have some fun. And it's all, it's all kind of focused around the, the missions and what we've got on the, on the docket. But I'm not planning on getting out of the space, space business anytime soon, unless Preston will let me come work with him, you know, because I could be a life goal. <laughs> anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Preston, how about you? So for me, it's always about research questions, right? And so most of my work has been on trying to understand how people learn to navigate uncertainty sustainably, right? Teams like the ones we've been talking about. And a big part of that has been what I mentioned, the tacit knowledge transfer problem, which is how do we explain what right looks like? Recently, however, there are some teams encountering some problems that no one's ever seen before, right? And so we rapidly encounter what's called the why-how problem. And the why-how problem for those listening is this, easily explained this way. The Marine Corps trains people, boot camp, how to do a thing. You don't need to know why. Not your job. Someone else will tell you why. You just need to know how. Medical school is going to teach you why and tell you you don't need to know how for a while. Like, don't touch anything. Just need to know the theory behind it. The problem is we're now encountering some problem sets where teams are coming together that need to learn why and how at the same time. But not a lot of people actually know how to do that well. 
People will yammer on about it and there's theories, but no kidding. On Monday, you put a scalpel in someone's hand and operate on a child and say, now do you know? And they'll be like, well, not, not as well as I thought 10 seconds ago. And so when you make it a, a super applied problem, it becomes really, really interesting. And we're hoping to partner with the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative to try to understand what's going on in the brain when we're trying to learn how and why at the same time under pressure address, where the consequence of failure is catastrophic. And if we can do something, if we can move the needle on that, a bunch of people, including NASA, will benefit. Very cool. Always pushing the boundaries. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the, the other question that was there, it's kind of a hard one to just throw on you and feel free to, to pass on this one. But tips for people at home who aren't putting rockets in the air or saving lives through teaching in terms of how just individuals can improve their own toughness, resilience, ability, and pressure. In one minute, go. In one minute. Okay. So two things, right? This leadership matters, right? Everyone knows that. But what I mean by that is you've got to give people permission, you know, especially with the pandemic and COVID, permission to ask for help, permission to take a break, permission to be tough. And so what you say and what you do and what you model, and that's a lot of vulnerability, especially right now with where we've all been with with the pandemic. The second part of that is personal, right? You yourself, in order to do some good for your team, have to be continuously disrupting your own thought process in order to grow because you got to stay ahead of them in some ways because you can't help them if you are stuck in the same loop. So always try to disrupt yourself and give them permission for whatever it is they, they need. Love it. Very actionable. Preston, what you got? Minute, I would, go. I would, I would agree with everything Holly said. And I would also say that most people who are experts in their in their field got so because they had the right answer to the question. And if somebody asked them, they could produce the right answer. And if you're going to be great, if you're going to do the kinds of things Holly was talking about, you've got to transition from having the right answer to having the right question. You've got to start what we say, weaponize your curiosity. You've got to start conversations, not with an answer, but with a question. And the question could be as simple as, I think what you just asked me was, but if you start with a question, it changes the dynamic of the entire exchange. It changes the way you think about it. So the actionable thing on Monday is start asking more questions. Love it. I want to thank you both sincerely. Preston, as I've mentioned, you, you've shifted the course of my life in a couple of ways. Thanks. Holly, for what you brought here and the dynamic that you both had was super fun. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate you both sharing your amazing expertise. If people want to find you and follow up, where do they look? Where, obviously, Holly, you're with NASA. Is there any way that people might approach you publicly or is that against the rules? No, no. I mean, it's it's not against the rules, right? You could, we have actually NASA flight directors, a uh, little bit of social media. I'm, I'm not all it's in. Huge. Holly's huge on social media. Uh, huge. <laughs> so NASA flight directors, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I actually just got my own Twitter. I don't know what to do with it. So, you know, if people haven't. <laughs> I find it's useful if you just go on there and like reply to random people with like controversial opinions. It just sparks some shit up. I'm, a t- I'm but, not uh, super controversial. That's not my. That's not my forte. I can be tough, okay. but controversial. <laughs> so people can find you on the on the regular channels. Preston, what about you? Where, if people are interested in contacting you, or particularly learning more about the mission critical teams work. Yeah, uh, you go to missioncti.com, but also if you go to like Spotify or any of the podcast services, we have a podcast called TeamCast, where we interview a bunch of people and our researchers in the show notes. So if people actually want to re- understand our research, 
in many of not all but many of our our team cast we also include the research behind it highly recommended if you're a podcast listener which you, i assume you are if you're on this that, that is the only podcast that i recommend so uh, go and get on it and uh, again thank you both for not only being here today sharing what you've shared but doing the work that you do that both expands people's ideas of what's possible and Preston saves people's lives while they're doing amazing, amazing things. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, excellent. Bustle with the best of them. Simply impressive. No one.